So my intention today is to summarize somehow the Eightfold Path of Practice that we began to talk about just after the first of the year. And uh, it came to me after the, uh, the end of last week's class together and uh, through the week as I thought about it that I, I really want to go through the path parts but I want to see them all through the lens of kindness because what I will end up saying is I am more and more convinced that the essence of what the Buddha taught is that the end of suffering comes through the transformation of the mind to a kind response in all situations towards oneself, towards what's happening, towards other people. I could say it another way. It's the transformation. It's the removal of the taints of greed, hatred, and delusion would be the fancy way to say that. But if I could remove all those taints, what would be left in the clarity of vision that would ensue would be a deep understanding of really the, the challenge that life is for all of us. The, in, the, in the Buddha's teaching uh, about uh, uh, the first noble truth, it's often rendered as birth is difficult, death is difficult. Coming into this world is complex, going out of this world is complex, and staying in it in between <laughs> is complex. Because we, the first time I heard it 35 years ago from my teachers, we, get, we don't get what we want, or we get what we want and then it changes and we don't want it anymore. Or what we thought we wanted, we, don't, we stop wanting. So we leave it or it leaves us and we're, we're in a, a not constant but recurring state of heartbroken. And if we were to realize that, we would be kind. I uh, remember mentioning over the last few weeks that uh, I had been very moved by the article, on the, the cover story in Time magazine a few weeks ago of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Burmese spokesperson for freedom and democracy, who has spent very much of the last 21 years in, either in detention or in house arrest. And at the end of the article, which I really want to read to you, just the last paragraph to set the tone for what I want to talk about, she says, it says, still for all her years of imprisonment and whatever travails may come, Su Chi considers herself lucky. It's not because of the people's adoration of her, but because of their respect a value she believes comes from a generosity of spirit. I'd say, I'd like that, I like that term because then she's going to say, this is quote, In my life I have been showered with kindness, she says. More than love, I value kindness. Love comes and goes, but kindness remains. And calling kindness a generosity of spirit She said when her son um, Kim was in Rangoon to see her for the first time in a decade, his kindness came in the form of a gift, a puppy, to keep her company. He's my guard dog, she jokes, even though the tiny mutt hasn't shown much bark or bite. He has an active tail, and he lets me know when someone is coming. That should be enough, don't you think? <laughs> a little wag of the tail, and that's the end of the article. That would be enough, a little wag of the tail. You know, last week, um, uh, how many of you were here when Ruth showed her photos of being in, in Tibet? Very, very moving um, uh, 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 account that Ruth gave of her uh, pilgrimage with her husband to different uh, major temples in Tibet and uh, photos of... Uh, some of the main points of, that they saw. And uh, she told us about how at a particular holy palace, there is a constant stream of uh, uh, pilgrims uh, uh, circumambulating, circumambulating around this holy place. 
And what we didn't see in the photos, but what we spoke about after uh, briefly, was the fact that uh, periodically, frequently periodically, through that uh, mass of uh, venerating pilgrims, a, uh, a patrol of uh, armed Chinese police in riot gear will go through go through the crowd without even without even uh, actively doing anything against any particular person can I, I could well sense that riot police circulating through a a, uh, a a group a throng of venerating pilgrims is an upsetting kind of a note to strike in the middle of that which it's meant to be uh, really which it's meant to be and afterwards, uh, I asked Ruth this morning if it would be all right for me to mention this. Afterwards, when, <coughs> when class was over and everyone left, and uh, Ruth husband's Mike, Ruth had, Ruth's husband Mike was here and talking to the few people who stayed over, he said it was very difficult for him not to get angry, that his practice throughout this period of time was to not have anger arise in him. And I noted that down in my mind because I thought that that practice, I think, is the most significant practice that we can do, to not have one of those taints of mind um, in some way, uh, we often call, mention all of them, greed, hatred, and delusion. And in some way that they're all um, uh, 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 reflections of uh, an inability of the mind to relax and negativity in a certain way, even when we think of greed as not a negativity, lust, it's not pushing something away, it's wanting something. But it's a dislike and a discontent with the current situation. I need this to make me happy. It's an agitated mind. Confusion is some form of, I can't bear to see this or I can't manage to see this. They're all destabilizing, and they all block the mind from a clear view of what's true. What's true is that the only thing that causes the mind to relax and feel at ease in this life is kindness. Those riot police are not feeling at ease in their life. To be able to look at people who are riot police and to be able to intuit in some way these are suffering people. Even if they feel excited by what they're doing, in the end, <coughs> I mentioned last week that I have a friend who's working, uh, uh, has been working until recently uh, for the government as a psychologist, working with returning uh, troops from Afghanistan and from Iraq. And he said, everyone is wounded. There are some people who are visibly wounded and some people who are physically wounded um, in some way. But he said, everyone is physically wounded, even if you can't see it in them. Their minds are wounded. To be trained to inflict harm on other people is to be corrupted in a terrible way. It's to have your mind wounded. We're not built <coughs> to do that. I, I, I'm going to reprise this photo that I showed you again just before we had our meditation this morning. This is a woman holding her two-month-old baby. And there's something, even if you're in the back and you don't see so well, you see that there's a, uh, um, an air of tenderness about it. Don't you see that? that and and uh, for myself, uh, I showed it to somebody yesterday. And, they looked at it and they said, ooh. And everybody looks at this and says, ooh, and does that. You know, that's the feeling that we have when we hold a baby, and especially a two-month-old who doesn't even, like Isabel, the baby that visited us this morning, she's five months old, so she sits up by herself. Not to say that it isn't wonderful to hold on to her, but a wee baby that can't hold itself up and that you're holding up, that we know how to do that instinctively. Nobody has to really, I mean, we, there are parenting classes, and this woman is in a parenting class. But for most of us, when someone hands us a baby, we don't have to be a woman, we could be a man. If we're a person and we're at ease, 
we take that baby and we know how to hold it. It's a, it's a human potential. <coughs> it's really, I think, um, corrupts the human psyche to, act, to ask it to kill people, to hurt people, to go and destroy people. This particular woman, just because I've shown you the photo twice, I'll tell you about her. She's in the Washington Correction Center for Women uh, for nonviolent inmates. She uh, almost didn't get into the program uh, because she had so many uh, warrants. For She had uh, quite a lot of uh, warrants, uh, offenses. After high school, she had attended Washington State University and got hooked on OxyContin. She soon moved on to heroin, then meth. Her parents sent her through several training programs, treatment programs, but each time she relapsed. After her most recent relapse, she met a group of addicts who taught her how to steal identities and forge checks. She got pulled over while driving, and the police found fake IDs and checks in her car. She was charged with 11 felonies. I was pregnant, and I knew I was pregnant, and I was trying to quit the drugs. It's shameful to think about. She checked herself into a drug treatment program for women with high-risk pregnancies and stayed there until she came to prison. They classified me into closed custody, she says. It's the highest level of security at the prison. It's on the other side of two razor wire fences. <coughs> she was put there because she was on a felony arrest warrant there was a felony arrest warrant for her in Oregon, which made her ineligible for the treatment program for women. My little window was four inches by 20 or something, and I'd just kneel on my bed, and I'd be praying, and I'd look over at this unit of women who are in prison with babies, and I'd see strollers coming up and down. And I was eight months pregnant, and then I was nine months pregnant, she said. Four days before Freeman's due date, prison officials notified her that Oregon had dropped her detention order and she was eligible to get into the mother program. I fell to my knees and started crying. The guard thought I was going into labor. They put me into my own room and I saw this bassinet and this crib and I couldn't have been happier. It was the best day of my life. Now you have like goose flesh when you hear that, that somebody gets rescued, not even us, somebody else that we don't know got rescued. Now she is in therapy taking courses on parenting, infant development, and healthy relationships. She's studying cosmetology. She has books on business plans stacked next to her bed. She's determined to live differently when she leaves prison. It goes on to say that uh, most of the women in this program do not do any do not fall back. Uh, the recidivism recidivism rate is very very low. She says uh, about it at the end. Uh, she's on a council called the Village, which creates supportive relationships between inmates and plans to learn what she's use what she's learned after release. I want to start an organization to help girls not end up where I did. She says, I hope to visit juvenile detention facilities, treatment centers, and schools to talk to young girls and provide support and mentors. Someone told me one time not to waste a good pain. I think I've had enough pain, and I think I have enough to benefit other people. Most importantly, she says, I want to be the best mom I can be. And you feel, I feel, I felt, I, mean, I, I assume it for all of us, that it's like I look at one person and one baby and think, okay, one life saved, you know? And somebody who is given an opportunity to feel the feeling of uh, extraordinary desire to take care of someone else that comes when you're safe and being held. By the time she had this baby, she was drug-free and therefore seeing clearly. And here comes this baby. And if you know that a new baby calls immediately forth the tremendous desire if our minds are clear and if we're not overburdened and if we have enough to eat and it isn't a frightening situation that we're in. 
In the Metta Sutta, there's a line that says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And I often think that's the key line in the whole Metta Sutta, because then it goes on to say, we should have these feelings of tenderness towards all beings, wish them well, no matter what. And I think that the key word, should someone come along and say, all very not well and good to say that, but how will we wish well to all beings? I think it's that line, wishing in gladness and in safety. When we ourselves feel glad and safe, that's what we wish. I, you know, I don't think I'm simplistic when I think that. Sometimes I say that to people and they say, yes, but look at this in the world, look at that in the world. I see that in the world. I, I don't, I really, I see it in the world. But I don't think it, of it so much as the fault of this person or that person or our fundamental nature. I think of it, if there's a fault, it's through the confusion that greed and hatred and uh, delusion set up in the mind so that, and cultural conditioning, so that we think we need more, we think we need other, and we think we, that everybody isn't just like us, that we aren't kin with everyone. You know, I watched, um, I watched the beginning of the State of the Union speech last night. I had to leave after it started, but I, which was all right because I assume I'll, you know, I'll buy the newspaper today and read the text in its entirety. And I wanted very much to watch the beginning, and I, this may sound strange to you, but I watched the beginning purposely with the sound off because I did not want to have the voice over of the commentators telling me, it'll be good if he says this, it'll be bad if he says this, it'll be terrible if he doesn't say that. Quarterbacking the whole event like it's a football game, and who's gonna win, and will he you know, make that touchdown pass in the right time? Because I, I think the, you know, the state of the world, the state of the nation, the state of all, everything, for it, a lot hangs on that. And I didn't want it hyped up as a, as a, as a prize fight or as a, as a football game, and any station that I would have listened to would not, I, you know, I would have been happy to have a station that said, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, and just make the speech, but not voice over what if he says, what if he doesn't say. I wanted to have the visual spectacle of seeing him walk in, because I, uh, I, 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 have, I have seen, as you have, many State of the Union speeches, and um, over the years, more and more partisanship, and there had been the news out that people were not going to sit with their particular political party, that they were going to sit like members of one governing body, one family of representatives of the United States. So it's not as if I have an idea that this is going to change the whole character of government, but that just for one evening, people would sit together as if they were kin and not adversaries. And you know, I know actually that when it was over two seconds later, there was a rebuttal State of the Union from another representative. But I, it didn't seem germane. I wanted the visual image of the President of the United States, in this case, a person of color, which is thrilling. You know, if it, it's whatever else, that itself is thrilling. The world has progressed a certain amount. You know, this, this country elected a person of color. I lived in Georgia in, uh, from 1959 to 1961, where persons of color were, were, were differentiated from, well, not to go into a whole story about that, but it was, I'd grown up in New York, and it was astounding and alarming to me to see signs about this door for people of color, this for not. You know, we look around here, we have people of different colors in here. And uh, I, I think it's just an extraordinary thing. I, you know, I, whatever feelings I might have about the United States or how we are in the world or foreign policy or internal policy, we elected a person of color. That's a huge thing. I looked over that Senate chamber that, the, with the representatives as well, and there's a tremendous number of women in there. <laughs> and people of all ethnicities in there. 
It doesn't look like when I saw pictures of it. I voted for the first time in 1960. Anybody voted before that? I voted, yeah. I voted for uh, John Kennedy uh, in 1960. I lived in Georgia at the time. They did not have instant tallying of the vote. Like you know, now we have with 1% of the precincts in, we are declaring. In those days, you had to wait for them to count. And we stayed up all night in Georgia to wait for the California vote to come in and to see. Sat up all night and ate pizza and talked about that it was going to be a different world. And it's 50 years ago. And it's not as different than we would, as we would have liked, but it is different. I wanted to see that, that walking in yesterday because I wanted to see what looked like, at least, a display of kindness and amicability between people with all kinds of views, all kinds of people who look different, all shaking hands with each other and all standing up together to applaud. But I'd like to have a world that did that. But, uh, Through a, through a series of circumstances too complicated to I even remember how I found this, but this is the lyrics to a song called um, Uncle John's Band. Anybody remember his Uncle John's Band? Who's, who, who is it? Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead. Uh, everybody knows Grateful Dead. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is... Uh, this Uncle John's band is currently in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I learned that the other day. Here's the, here's the verse. Well, the first days are always the hardest days. Don't you worry anymore, because when life looks like easy street, there's danger at your door. Think this through with me. Let me know your mind. All I want to know is, are you kind? You remember that? Think this through with me. Let me know your mind. All I want to know is, are you kind? The whole rest of it is extraordinary dharma. Life, when life looks like easy street, there's danger at your door. That doesn't mean, oh, you have to worry about every bush. But it, I think to me, what it means is you don't know what's going to happen next. All the time, it's a surprise from one minute to the next. And that resting in the present moment is not never really... Being at ease is lovely, but to have in the ease the awareness that right away a challenge, right away a challenge, right away a challenge. I remember thinking when I was a child, I was, I was sick a lot. So I was home from school a lot when I was a child. I missed a lot of school staying home with different, um, different infections. Uh, and I watched, I listened, I didn't watch because it was before television. I listened to soap operas on the radio all day long, as did my grandmother, which is probably my introduction to soap operas. I listened to the romance of <laughs> Helen Trent. And you, did you listen to the romance of Helen? <laughs> I was sick a lot, And you were sick a lot? The romance of Helen Trent, Our Gal Sunday. Life can be beautiful. Can be beautiful. <laughs> the guiding light. The, and I, and I had a kind of a, the shadow. But on the soap operas particularly, I thought to myself, you know, this is not like true life. All they have is catastrophes here. <laughs> because as soon as a character on the soap says, uh, it's still true, you know, on the soap, as soon as the character says, I'm so happy, oh. life is perfect, you know that they have a commercial then they come back after the commercial, and it hasn't even gone out the echo from, I'm so happy, nothing can go wrong now. The phone rings, and someone has been in an auto wreck and is in the hospital in a coma, and they don't know if they're going to pull through. And I thought to myself, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. This only happens in, super, in, in soap operas. But it doesn't. It happens in everybody's life. When you think you're on easy street, there's always something coming around, and you don't expect it. Maybe not the next second. 
But I think when we realize that, which is really the first noble truth, life is very complex. And the cause of suffering, not the cause of pain, but the cause of suffering is the inability of the mind to look at it clearly and say, all right, clear-mindedly, what can I do now? Another way of putting that is that suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be different right now. They can't be different right now. The, uh, they, I, I, when people say it should be a different world, it isn't. It's the only world that it could be given the whole of history, not even recent history, but the whole of history. It could be a different world tomorrow. It's not a fatalistic understanding what the Buddha taught. It's certainly not an idea that we just take what we get and life goes over you. That one of the, de the definition of mindfulness has built into it the mind's ability moment to moment to have a balanced understanding of what is happening now without uh, manipulating it or changing it in any way, without, without holding it or pushing it away or not seeing it clearly to say, well, in words, that actually in the, in the song, Uncle John's Band, there actually is those words, whoa, whoa. All I want to know is, are you kind? So really, whoa, the mind, without anybody else perceiving it, stopping and saying, okay, what do I do now without creating suffering for myself and for other people? What is the wise response now? Now would be a good time to say that the Eightfold Path, <laughs> otherwise the time will go away and I won't say it, the Eightfold Path, in most texts, is, here it is, the way, the, the way leading to the secession of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path, that is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We have, in our recent history, uh, changed the word right to wise. I think it, you know, it, it, I could argue it the other way. It's, it is the right way. The other way is not a way that's a successful way. But somehow, I didn't change it. My, the teachers right before my generation of teachers somehow had the habit of calling it wise. Because, and I think, it's, I think it's a wise change because uh, they, also ch they also stopped saying um, right and uh, good and evil as much as we say skillful and unskillful. It, t it takes away the blame from it because people who behave unwisely, there's a, there's a different ring to it. It's more generous of spirit to say so-and-so acts, in my view, unwisely than to say so-and-so is wrong or that was a bad thing to do. You know, e even if your mind says that was a bad thing to do, that was unwise. Because it gives, it, it actually, when you think about it, not only falls easier on the ears, less harsh, but it was unwise. If that person was wise, they wouldn't do that. And it changes this from a system of blame to a system of education, when people don't understand and they're unwise, when ignorance has prevailed, then what's called for is teaching, not, not um, revenge or retribution. I was teaching with uh, Larry Yang in, um, um, in the East Bay on Sunday as a benefit for the East Bay Meditation Center. We were talking about uh, one of the attractive, one of the really uh, attractive uh, um, aspects of talking Dharma is the fact that it, uh, it really holds, it really differs from a culture that, uh, of blame and retribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's not, it's, uh, it's a different way of holding a teaching for a misunderstanding something.
something like that. If we could educate everybody, if we could say, stop, let's look around. I hear myself saying this often. We're killing each other. We're ruining the planet. This isn't wise. Let's just stop. Let's not worry about who did it and which side of the aisle they sit on. And if only they hadn't, and if only they hadn't. Let's think about what would be the wise thing to do now. When a noble disciple has understood these causes of the continuation of suffering, that person understands the way leading to the cessation of suffering and entirely um, abandons the underlying tendency to greed, establishes the underlying tendency, abolishes the underlying, underlying tendency to aversion, he, I keep changing, I keep trying to not to say the he, it does say he. This is the Majjhima that's the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and uh, this is the, um, one of the sermons of the Buddha. So I'm trying to take out the, the gender remarks, but he was writing in, a, in, a, in another era. Abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion and extirpates the underlying tendency uh, to the view and conceit I am by abandoning ignorance and arousing to knowledge, here and now that person makes an end to suffering. So talking about wise view as realizing um, is that tendency to I, I need it this way, it must, uh, for my comfort, it has to be otherwise. Um, it's the abandonment through wisdom that it isn't about I, that uh, one of the insights of the Buddha was that there is no separate I, that all our experience is beingness in relationship, and that really the only thing to say is we, and what relates to all beings, that the, the um, we certainly take care of our own mind-body, but to realize that self-centeredness ultimately is what reignites uh, a feeling of I need it to be different. This is the way I wanted it to be that gets in the way of this is the way that it is. And all of those eight wises are ways of remembering uh, remembering the way to kindness Remembering that the experience of kindness, the experience of kindness, which is so soothing to, the, to well, using the conceit of I, of uh, so soothing to me is soothing to other people, is soothing to everyone around, is generally soothing. We take care of each other. The tendency to self-centeredness is in all of them replaced by the cognizance of relatedness. That's a good sentence. I never said that just that way. I like that sentence. Sometimes I, I, I really say something better than I've said it before. That was a good sentence. I might even have to listen to this. <laughs> it's really exchanging the tendency to um, the tendency towards the, the sense it has to be another way to the pleasure of Knowing that I that no um, no suffering has been created, the bliss of blamelessness is what the Buddha called it. The three parts of the Eightfold Path that have to do with wise um, relationship are wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood, and they're real, really, really all permutations of each other. We could just say wise action, uh, action that's really uh, undertaken with a full understanding of the ramifications of this action on myself and everyone else. I learned from Donald the line from Rilke last week, I live my life in widening circles. And I've been thinking about it over and over again because not only do we have widening circles of affinities, 
like those that are closest to us and those that we can think about, but they're in a different um, level of uh, heart connection than those that are closest to us. But I, I thought about it. I live my life in widening circles. And I also had the image of uh, a stone that falls in a pond and then ripples go out. And the, uh, and the sense that whatever I do has ripples out. Uh, some, the proximal ones, are more make more of a uh, of a movement in the proximal world, but that everything matters in the long run, and that the people who are affected by whatever I do, or whatever you do, or whatever anybody does, affect the people around them, affect the people around them, affect the people around them. So, when I first heard that Rilke quote, I thought it had to do with level of affinity as we do it when we say I love so-and-so, these are my best beloveds, those people I know a little bit, those people I hold at a distance. But I think also I live my life in widening circles means that we have an effect what we do. Somebody, um, there's a video going around on the YouTube that... Um, um, my my friend and colleague uh, Anna Douglas has sent around. I looked at it early this morning. It's called Kindness in Tucson. And did you see it? There, what there? It's um, it's a th little three minute clip about a woman in Tucson who three years ago, two years ago, no longer because she said they've been active and they were active post Katrina and and uh, post 9-11. Her three-year-old son, sometime ago then, this woman was killed, I think in an automobile accident because just by a car on the sidewalk or something, just, doesn't matter. But I saw one of the immediate sequelae uh, or street signs in Tucson that said, watch out for children and animals. Uh, and they flashed on that. She said, my three-year-old son was killed at which time I found that what supported me the most were individual acts of kindness that people did. And um, she began to make uh, ceramic bells with a little painted beautiful ceramic bells. And the clip begins with noticing bells ringing in a beautiful melodious, melodious way, hanging from tree branches. And... Uh, what her organization, which has grown and grown, does, and you see these people, I'm pretty sure men as well as women, painting away like a wind chime bell. And um, they hung them in the trees in Tucson right after the recent horrible event of um, two weeks ago in Tucson, is where so many, six people were killed. And, a lot of people wounded, and they hang them in the trees, and it says, um, take one of these bells if you find it, it's yours, and uh, remember to do a kindness. Mm -hmm. And they go places. They were in New Orleans post-Katrina, they were in New York after September 11th, and what they do is they go with a lot of these bells and hang them in trees with a sign that if you find one of these bells, take it. And I was just so moved by the idea of coming to a, a place where, where something really dreadful has happened that's really an assault on the human spirit. How could this happen? That's counteracted in a certain way by an anonymous act of kindness. You don't have to give anything for it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything. So there's, a, there's a little card attached. This is to remind you about the potency of individual acts of kindness, take the bell home with you. Imagine if everybody in the world got in the mail tomorrow a bell and said, hang this on your door. Ten minutes. So let's think through all of those the, the, at least the six whys. We've talked a lot about wise understanding. To think about, 
to really realize, not think about, but to get it is what it means, to get it, that all of us really want to live at ease, you know, that I think often we're bewildered by ideas about what will make us happy. Fundamentally, I, I think if if we could think, when I get home tonight, nothing dreadful will have happened to anyone I love. I won't find out something awful about any of the people I care about. That when I hear something, as we inevitably will, about somebody's illness, somebody's troubles. I mean, this is a world of of flesh and blood and things happen to people, that it will be uh, somehow held in such a context, like my friend David who says, you know, I'm all right with this cancer because I've had a few friends die. And so I've learned from watching them how many people come around and are kind during that <coughs> time. And I am depending on that, and it's already happening. So it's as if it's not at all happy about having this illness, but he says, I've seen how people do it, held up by kindness, and I'm counting on that. I said, uh, I said on the phone the other day, I said, it's good that you have a big family. He said, you said it, you know. They're, you know, they're here all the time, so I'm thinking about them as well. The understanding that kindness supports us through the inevitable difficulties of life. And I think that, that, that the understanding that a life alone without adding to it things like not sharing resources or things like just all the, all the things that lead us to hoard, to make wars, to hurt people, we wouldn't do it. If we could really understand that the happiness of a heart of the bliss of blamelessness was better than anything else, and wise aspiration to really uh, live up to that, I saw the film uh, Invictus. Did I tell you that last week? No, I must have seen it since last week. Do you know what it is? It's, yeah. It's, for those of you who don't know, it's the story of Nelson Mandela being elected president of South Africa. And uh, just before uh, uh, the... South Africa is in the playoffs for the World Cup in rugby. And so the, the, play revol the movie revolves around that aspect of the rugby game in South African history. There's a lot of other parts, but there's an extra there are extraordinary, um, I found it an extraordinary film. The two pieces that I, the lines that I come away remembering are um, near the end of the film, when the rugby team has won against all odds, and you see them coming along. And Matt Damon plays the um, captain of that team. And he's explaining to his wife about why he has been so moved and inspired by Nelson Mandela. And he explains that he visited the cell in which Mr. Mandela was imprisoned for 30 years, where if you put your arms out this way, you touch both walls that you really, and he was there for 30 years. And he said, I keep thinking about a person who spent 30 years in a room like that and comes out prepared to forgive his jailers. I think to myself, whoa. If someone said to me, if you undertake this practice wholeheartedly of following the Eightfold Path of Practice, you would be able to do that. I would like that more than anything else. Not only fulfill your jailer, Forgive your jailers, forgive everyone and everything that disappointed you. That's extraordinary. Early on in the film, when he is first elected president, there's a scene that where he enters his office for the first time, and his uh, two closest bodyguards, who are black men, are in their office and in come uh, four of the former bodyguards of President Leclerc. And these two men who have been so fiercely protective of uh, Mr. Mandela say, Mandela say, what are you, why are you here? And they say, well, we're here to join you in this office. And one of the, one of the 
uh, original bodyguard says, wait right here. And he goes to the president's office. And he said, what do you mean, sending it? He said, how can they be here, these guys? And he said, I sent them. And he said, well, wait a minute. Uh, how can you send them? They're the same. He said, how can I not send them? He said, if we don't invite them in to run this government together with us, then we will be doing the same thing that they did. And if we're going to have a democracy, we really have to start by having a democracy, not people who are in and people who are out. Everybody's in. And he's this fiercely protective guy. Ah! And he has to go back and hear these, his colleague and these four other guys standing. And he said, okay, here we go. And, and they start. So they're coming to appreciate each other over the course of the film is like a reflection of what goes on until the final rugby game. But that one particular speech, if we don't invite them in as our colleagues, we'll be recapitulating this all, the, the same thing. And he came out prepared to forgive his jailers with the two parts that I thought, those are the two lines for which the whole world ought to see that movie. And that I ought to see it every day. Every time that I think to myself, er, that to really make it one's practice to take out greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a very huge premise. It's a huge promise, actually, that we could do it. That wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, those three last path parts, are the steadiness of mind to be able not to get so startled that confusion begins to reign, that we could remember all the time that that's the truth. Peace is possible. But we have to give up all the views, and principally the view of other, ourselves, other, me, you. I mean, there is a me and there is a you on the level of everyday life. We go home to different places. I have to remember who I live with. You have to remember who you live with. <laughs> I even have to remember who I like and who I don't particularly like. It's not about liking people or who it's safe to be with and who it's not safe to be with. It's not about forgetting to be real in this life. It's about forgetting to have animosity about it, to being able to convert that animosity into wise understanding. Everybody is how they are because they couldn't, can't, couldn't be different right now. They could all change. The, the movie Invictus, which I really suggest you rent or get on Netflix or whatever. It's about people change. They learn to see things in a new way. I think that the whole of this path is to learn to see things in a new way. The end of the Metta Sutta says, by not clinging to fixed views, a pure-hearted one, being freed of all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And it's confusing about freed of all sense desires. We still are hungry in the morning if we haven't eaten or hungry in the evening. And we feel like standing up and stretching. And we feel like touching each other. And there, there, are, there, are, there are sense desires that are part of having a human body that are not problematic. I think, the, the, I think in the translation it loses, uh, I would have translated it as being freed from the imperative of sense desires, to be able to say this is a wise way to express this, this is a wise way to express that. Right. Not creating... Um, that helps. Yeah. I mean, I, I really wouldn't want not to have sense desires. I mean, we need to have them. We're human beings. I think, I think the proper translation would be freed from the imperative of sense desires, is not born again into suffering. Wise mindfulness is the ability, moment to moment, to see what's true, to not manipulate what's true, to act on what's true, which might, might be to take action this way or the other way, but to do it without the imperative of negativity. May I be free of negativity. That's actually what hurts the mind. It's so counterintuitive, you know, that the feeling of 
that's so self self righteous. I'm right, and they're wrong, and I'll get them. The feeling of that is it's very enlivening. You feel alive, and oh, you feel you feel ex you feel excited in your body. I don't know whether you feel alive, but you, it's definitely um, it's definitely seductive. Indignation, righteous indignation. It's eleven, so we have to stop, but. Just uh, even as a mother protects with her child, her only child, just so should we cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. That's actually what we're supposed to do, radiate kindness over the entire world. Someone asks you, what's your spiritual practice? You say, I'm radiating kindness over the entire world. Because I think that's what the mandate is. On the one hand, I'm, I'm moved to say it's, a, it's such a, on the one hand, daunting thought because we are so strung, it's so counterintuitive. And so I want to, I want to leave this by saying that the Buddha said, uh, I would not have uh, mandated this for you to do, he said to his monks in one of his teachings. I would not have told you to do this if it couldn't be done. So I take a lot of pleasure from that, because he did say do it. So I hope until we meet again in a month or so, may you all feel safe and content and strong, and may we all feel safe and content and strong and live with ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.